Please listen carefully. 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 Hello, and welcome to the Utterly Moderate Podcast, where two reasonable social scientists discuss important topics by focusing on just the facts and none of the unneeded opinions and biases. I'm Allison Dagnus, and I'm a political scientist. And I'm Lawrence Eppert. I'm a sociologist. How are you doing on this Labor Day weekend, Allie? Well, I'm great because it's a Labor Day three-day weekend, Lawrence. That's right. Yes. (laughs) So we get to celebrate labor by taking a day off. I feel like last year we didn't. Didn't we we have to work on Labor Day last year? I don't think so. I don't know. Last year is such a blur. It is. Like, I think, didn't we take the whole year <laughs> and kind of like half work and half not work. <laughs> That's right. I don't know. And just, and just observed our kids on Zoom and try to keep them yeah, on our Zoom sessions. 2020 <laughs> was awful. That was just, yeah, that was the pits. Yeah, Allie, I have a great t-shirt that I bought online. It says, uh, it's it's got the DeLorean on the front. And it says, Marty, whatever you do, don't ever set the year to 2020. <laughs> that's really funny i like that um i have actually a yard sign uh a political yard sign and i finally revealed which candidate i was supporting and it was meteor in 2020 just get it over with (laughs) i felt pretty good about that one and then of course um all my friends got me like quarantini you know, t-shirts <laughs> and uh, lots of <laughs> lots of stuff about drinking a lot of wine. Um, it was a rough year, but uh, but here we are. It is Labor Day weekend. We sort of have a a foot in um, COVID times, a foot in pretending that it's normal times, and um, and we have. Wait, hold on a second. Are you going to blame your wine drinking on 2020? I blame everything on 2020. <laughs> That's like the old joke, like. Uh... You know, somebody gets injured or whatever, and he says, Doc, will I ever be able to play the piano again? They're like, you couldn't play the piano before. (laughs) It's like, yeah, Allie, you were drinking wine before the coronavirus. (laughs) I was. um, And and then it got worse. Uh, uh, So here we are on on Labor Day weekend in the year of our Lord, 2021. and, um, And I always wonder this on on these long, you know, three day weekends, like, do most people stop and think, what does this, what does this extra day off mean? You know, what does, what are we memorializing on Memorial Day? What do we think about on Labor Day? And so you and I thought that for this Labor Day, we would actually stop and think about labor. And so today we're going to be talking about work and we're going to be talking about the jobs very specifically of the working class. That's right. We've got two great guests on the program today to help us think about the work that the working class does in America today. And the working class is Americans with a high school degree or less, which is most of the American workforce. So up first, we're going to speak with the chief economist from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, Chad Stone. And then we'll speak with Emily Gundelsberger, who wrote on the clock what low wage work did to me and how it drives America insane, a book that was released last year. And, you know, you and I talk about our jobs now a tremendous amount. So I don't think we should bore um, our, <laughs> our listener. Hi, dad. Uh, you know, with more stories of, of our jobs now. Um, but let's bore him with stories of our jobs uh, before. So when you were, you know, when you were a young Lawrence, younger even than you are right now, um, did you ever, did you work like when you were in high school and college? I've had some interesting jobs, Allie. You ready? Okay. Uh, should we have like a, should we have like a throw? I actually don't know the answers to this. So should we have like a throwdown of like who had the better, the better <laughs> high school, high school jobs, college jobs? All right. Uh, Sure. Or we could, you could guess, I could tell you, I could give you some, some hints and you could, you and your guessing games. There's no way I'm going to be able to guess. Okay. Go ahead. Give me, okay. Tell me what, what jobs did you have? Okay. I I bet you can guess this one. An embarrassing job in retail. You are a male model. (laughs) In retail. (laughs) I was a mannequin. (laughs) Got so boring standing in those store windows. (laughs) You were just talking about sociology. (laughs) 
I worked at Spencer's gift. Shut up. You did not. <laughs> I didn't even know that people worked at Spencer's. Every time I went in there, the place was like, there was nobody working there. There were a couple people just either buying lava lamps or black lights or posters of the who. Oh my, you worked at a Spencer's. <laughs> yep. You are honest. I mean this with my whole heart. You are the only person I have ever known who has worked at a Spencer's. I didn't even also, know wouldn't such that be a person, the last person existed. You would expect to work at a Spencer's? You are the single last person I ever... I'm a pretty buttoned up person. You really are. You worked <laughs> at a Spencer's. That's like as close to edgy as suburbia got. I mean, that was like, holy cats. That is amazing. I had another really interesting job. You want to hear? It cannot be more interesting than that. I honestly think that that's the best we're going to get. I was an exterminator. I lied. That's the best we're going to (laughs) get. Well, that job, man, holy moly. Uh, That job actually paid pretty well, to be quite honest. Uh, Oh, I believe it. Yeah, it actually paid pretty well because like bugs don't go away. And, uh, but man, there are some, I mean, some awful stories from that job. I remember one time being in a crawl space Ooh. and with a, with a partner and we were drilling holes in cinder block. <laughs> and, and you know what? I think that that's, that's actually the description of a movie that I bought at Spencer gifts. <laughs> so we were in this crawl space and we were drilling into the cinder block and we had to inject the pesticide. And there was some sort of like, there was termites or something inside of these oh. cinder blocks. And all of a sudden we hear a rustling in the leaves in the crawl space. Oh, oh God. Yeah. <laughs> we ran out of there as fast as we can. I think we came back and finished that job later, but uh, just awful stories like that. Like, um, wait, you never found out what the rustling was. Oh no. I mean, crawl spaces. One time I had to go in and remove a dead cat from a crawl space. Yeah. I mean, just that was half eaten by, bugs i mean it was just okay terrible, you tell terrible. the worst stories you have to have an ending to the story we like ran the out the story was we ran out you that's not an ending that's that's like the middle like and when we went back we realized that it was jimmy hoffa <laughs> who was hiding in the crawl space well i assume whatever animal was in there left because it wasn't there when we went back oh god no he he went to new jersey everybody saw the movie <laughs> Uh, other story, like we, uh, you know, you would um, climb a ladder. So, you know, Great Falls, right? Great Falls, Virginia. Sure. These beautiful, you know, multi-million dollar homes. And so, these people have like these two, three-story living rooms. And I had, I, had, I had to bring in binoculars to see they had a bunch of bees in their house. Oh, wow. And at the very top of this huge living room. Oh, no. There's a hole in the ceiling and I can see <gasps> the bees coming in. So, I'd get a 40-foot ladder. And go up there. And so I go up there and I inject the, you know, the the pesticide into the hole. And all of a sudden, just hundreds of dead bees are just, and some oh, partially alive no. are just falling on my head as I'm desperately trying to get down this 40-foot ladder. That sounds terrible. <laughs> Why would you do that job? Uh, I needed a job. Wow. That's a really a, bad one. Yeah. I had a job once uh, where I was, uh, I went into a shed to, to get rid of uh, you know, bees or they seem to be a common theme here. So went into a, a shed to, to uh, smoke out a, a bee's nest. And then I, I backed out like 30 feet from the shed just to stand and, and wait until it was dead. And then I'd go and remove it. And I see in the distance, like a cartoon, one angry bee. Oh no. Flying towards me. Oh no. This is looking for you. <laughs> Lands on top of my bald head and stings me. Ouch. Seriously? It's like seven in the morning and people are like getting ready for work. And I'm like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that, I mean, there, you know, there's all sorts of awfulness. Yeah. It was a really, it was a really terrible job. The worst one, the worst one I ever had was when I went into a crawl space. Crawl space. I hate crawl spaces. Went to a crawl space and saw a bunch of discarded snake skins. Okay. No. I'm not. Yeah. This is the worst <laughs> open ever. The worst. What are we talking about? I just wanted to talk about jobs. <laughs> well, I mean, the job wasn't a bad job. It paid really well. I worked with some great people. I worked for some great people there. But yeah, I mean, you had to do some pretty gross things. You're an exterminator. I did. I didn't know the job was this bad. I mean, like, I, 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 you know, 
I was thinking like we would talk. I worked at Huggin Does in Georgetown <laughs> and like the gap. It was, you know, I, I know how to fold a lot of sweaters and stuff. Oh, I, I got one more story for you. Oh, no. So, so um, I went to a house and, you know, we would either when, when people had mice, you either. Oh, God, you Lawrence. Can, you can either trap the mice humanely. Right. And then release them. Uh-huh. Or you can put out bait and, and that will kill the mice. Um, and uh, but, you know, you never expected to go into a house and catch the mouse while you're there. No. <laughs> but I, I go into this house and this guy's adamant that I catch the mouse. I'm like, dude, there's no way I'm going to catch this. It's probably not even in your house right now. Like It's probably going to come in tonight and get warm and, you know eat and all those sorts of things but he's like no he's like i'm adamant it's it's in this bedroom upstairs i i've seen it you have to come get it i'm like all right i'll just whatever i'll just do this for this guy just to whatever just to just show him that i'm gonna put out the effort you know because this is customer service after all and then i'll when i can't find it i'll i'll leave you know and so I go up there and, and he, he quickly closes the door behind me and I'm looking around. I'm sort of looking and I, I'm looking through boxes and, you know, just making a, a show of doing it. And out of the box jumps this mouse <laughs> <laughs> and starts running around the room, running up computer wires. And I, I eventually actually did catch it. Much to my surprise, Get out of I here. eventually caught it. And the guy's like, now I want you to take it outside and kill it. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to do that. So I said that I would do that, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to murder a mouse. Like, you know, putting bait down is different from like, you know, yeah. taking it at, you know, it's, it's, it's life with your hands. So I put it in a box, you know, secure box, lock the box up, box up, put it in the back of the car. I think I was down in like Arlington, Alexandria somewhere. I drove all the way down the toll road because if you release uh, a pest like that anywhere near the house, they'll find their way back. Right. Even like a mile. I think sometimes they can find their way back. Wow. So I went way down the toll road and, and got off the toll road at the exit near where my office was because I was done for the day. And I pulled off, you know where the exit is on 28? I off of the don't. Toll road? So, you had an office? Well, I mean, you, there was a place where you parked your truck and all that kind of stuff. Okay. So anyway, so I pull off the exit and I pull off uh, to the shoulder and I walk out into the grass near the woods to release the mouse, right? Uh-huh. And say, good riddance mouse, you know. You, today's your lucky day, right? So I put the box down towards the woods. I open the top and I take a step back. The mouse exits the box, immediately U-turns, <gasps> runs back towards the highway, and I see it get hit by a car. Oh, no. All that work for nothing, that poor mouse. Oh, all yeah. mice go to heaven. <laughs> That's right. So I'm going to have a talking to with that mouse when I get that. Really like, look, hard. I tried. I tried really hard to help you. Really you out. did. Yeah. That so. seems like a lot of work. But that was very sweet of you. But you I know tried. what? That means that also means you're not a psychopath. That's right. I did not go out and like stick a hammer to the mouse or something. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> that seemed also, like a crazy thing. Like, what are you going to watch me do it? I was like, no, I'll, I'll release it. I'll whatever. So. Wow. I'm so very anyway, excited so, that you caught that mouse. That's very impressive. It was, I mean, I, I, I was just going through the motions. I'm, I'm like, you know, barely opening boxes. Like, yeah, I'm looking for the mouse. And then <laughs> box this mouse. freaked me out. We had a, uh, in our basement, we had a squirrel, like, hop through, um, I guess, our fireplace at, at some point. And I, and I was downstairs and I saw it and just screamed bloody murder, went upstairs, grabbed Pete. I was like, there's a squirrel in our basement. He's like, okay, grab, you know, big oven mitts, you know, and he got like huge, you know, mittens or something. And he was like, help me, help me. We're going to humanely catch the squirrel. And so I became, <laughs> it was whatever the opposite of a combat multiplier was, I was, I was the like, cause every, anytime the squirrel would like, just, just go like, blink, blink, jump over. I would just scream as if like someone was being slaughtered in our basement. And finally, you're not like, helping. Get out of yeah, here. He was like, I think, I think you should go upstairs and check on the windows upstairs just to see if they're okay. I was like the windows. He's like, just go upstairs. Check and the so yeah. <laughs> he was able by himself uh, to, to back the squirrel into this tiny mini fridge. It's not that tiny. Actually, it's fairly large. This mini fridge that we had downstairs, he got the squirrel into the mini fridge, put a huge blanket behind it, and then carried the mini fridge and the blanket and the squirrel upstairs and released the squirrel outside safely Aww. so that it was okay. I was like, <laughs> you you lifted a, a refrigerator upstairs so that the squirrel <laughs> would be all right. 
And he was like, goodbye, squirrel. Fly, be free. And I was like, oh my God, what's (laughs) happening right now? He was like, at least you stopped screaming. (laughs) Pete the combat veteran. I know, exactly. Well, that's what happens, right? You come back and... Every and every, all God's creatures. Yep, that's true. <laughs> Do you have any interesting job stories? Nothing compared to that. Absolutely <laughs> nothing compared to that. I thought I did, but I no. You beat me with the snake skins and the mice and the tarantulas and the whatever it was. You know, that's just too much stuff. That's just a lot of crawl spaces. Uh, crawl spaces. No, and I'm like, you. I'm like deathly afraid of insects. Of spiders, of snakes. Here, I got Crawl bad news for you. Apparently, you're out. not because you did that job. <laughs> and a 40 foot ladder? Crawl spaces are, well, crawl, and crawl spaces are really claustrophobic. I mean, yes, they some are. Of them, some of them were big, but some of them were literally like the, the floorboards were right above your chest. That's why they're called crawl spaces and yeah. not Florida rooms. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. Oh, they were terrible. And they always, there's always something in there. It was disgusting. Oh, yeah. No, thank you. No, thank you. I don't even like going into Caroline's room. You know, and that's not a crawl space. <laughs> that's just that's just a 16-year-old girl's room. <laughs> Poor Caroline. Like makeup and stuff on the floor. Someday, you know? someday she's going to hear this pod. <laughs> <laughs> She'll be proud. Yeah, She'll right. say, that's right, Mom. You should be afraid of coming into my bedroom. <laughs> I've succeeded. Uh, that's funny. Yeah, She's like the one that like leaves a survivor to tell the stories. That's exactly right. Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> tell what you've seen here. <laughs> Maddie's like, like don't know. go in there, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> the legend lives on. That's right. It is true. It is true. Well, we haven't had all bad jobs. We both love our current jobs. And that is, oh, that is so true. That is very true. Although I do suspect that our students are going to enjoy having that Monday off. And, and I hope that they are all reflecting on um, on work on that Monday off, even if they are out um, frolicking. We'll just put it that way. Frolicking. All right. Well, first up, we're going to talk to Chad Stone, who's the chief economist at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And then we're going to talk to Emily Gundelsberger, who wrote On the Clock, What Low-Wage Work Did to Me and How It Drives America Insane. Allie's actually very busy today, so she has to help her daughter move into her dorm room, which means she's not going to be a part of this first conversation, but she'll be back with us for the second conversation with Emily. So... First up is Chad Stone, coming up next. Chad Stone, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lawrence. Good to be here. So uh, before we dive into the topics for today, which are very interesting on Labor Day, uh, but first, let's talk about your own training as an economist, um, the work that you do at the Center on Budget, as well as the work that the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities does more generally. So my training as an economist uh, began as an undergraduate at Swarthmore College, uh, where I uh, got my, my uh, degree uh, with in e- economics, political science, and history. I thought I was going to do history when I went to college. I did economics. I thought I was going to do economic history when I went to graduate school at Yale. I did more mathematical economics. But um, I've quickly moved on, uh, or relatively quickly moved on from academia to doing um, policy research. Uh, I've I've worked um, currently at the Center on Budget, where I've been since 2007. I am the chief economist, and the Center on Budget focuses on policies aimed at helping low-income people, examining income inequality, but also has great expertise on the budget, including budget process and taxation. Part of my uh, part of my career before coming to the center, um, I I taught for for a while at Swarthmore College in the economics department. I, uh, I worked for Congress, um, mainly for the Joint Economic Committee, but for a couple other committees. And I've worked, uh, I worked, I was, uh, the chief economist, um, at the Clinton Council of Economic Advisors, um, in, in 2000. Uh, I, I was there for four years. I was the chief economist in the last year. 
Um, so I've been uh, all over the map, have a fair amount of exposure to a lot of different policy areas. You've been around but the block, yeah. Around the block, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just out of curiosity, this isn't uh, why I brought you on the show today, but just out of curiosity, how does it feel um, being an alum and going back and teaching at the institution where you studied? Um, it was it was fun. I was I was I, I was glad to do it. I you know, you know I like the institution and you know they're they're, they're interesting, smart students, um, and so they're fun to teach and good colleagues um, and uh, close to where I grew up. So I also got to to look in on my parents and things like that. Where'd you grow up? I grew up um, in uh, in Delaware County as well, um, just outside Philadelphia in uh, Drexel Hill, which is in Upper Darby Township. Oh wow! Yeah. So you're not far from us here in uh, Shippensburg. That's right. So uh, on this Labor Day, which is the the topic of our show today, we are celebrating labor on Labor Day. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of what the job market outlook is generally in the U.S. on this Labor Day, but also more specifically what it looks like for high school educated Americans compared to those with a college degree? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and and it's and it's hard to answer because for the since the pandemic the as you know the labor market has been in complete turmoil hard to hard to hard to discern um longer term trends because uh in the short term everything's about the pandemic and how that's affecting and right. and, and just as we thought things were really turning a corner um and and in fact we have turned a corner and 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 jobs have been coming back um, the, the Delta variant has thrown a monkey wrench into the expansion. Right. And we, what we just saw uh, uh, on Friday uh, with the jobs report for August was very low job creation compared with expectations, 235,000 jobs, which is a lot in a normal labor market. But in a recovering labor market, we were looking for three times that and wow. we didn't get it. And um Workers, low-paid low workers, were the ones who got hit hardest in the pandemic when jobs just disappeared in a lot of industries, like especially leisure and hospitality. Came back halfway um, last year, and we and we started to see resurgence again this year, and then that it slowed down again uh, due to the due to the Delta variant, most likely, and the uncertainty created, and uncertainty about going back to school. People. People may not be going back into the labor force because they have childcare responsibilities right. that, that they have to take care of. So, so it's a really complicated. So since February of 2020, the month before the, the pandemic hit, it's been really hard to interpret um, the, the data. Lo longer term trends, as you probably know, um, low, low paid workers um, have, have seen pretty slow growth since for quite some time. Compared, compared with the with the median worker, the one in the middle, the, uh, but but especially compared to, to folks at the very top, most of most of the most of the wage growth and earnings growth and income growth has occurred at the very top of the distribution since the mid seventies. You you highlighted the nineteen seventies, right? So before the nineteen seventies, there was inequality, but you know, people who who remember the old saying, "A rising tide lifts all boats." You know, if I go around the room in my classroom, I always tell my students, and I say. You know, think about how much money you have in your pocket right now. Okay, I'm gonna put a hundred dollars in every one of your pockets. In absolute terms, your your quality of living gets better, right? You have more money to spend and discretionary income, et cetera. But the the relative differences between you remain the same. So you know, structural mobility, society is getting better up to the 1970s, and then all of a sudden something changes. So can you talk about that and talk about what is it that changed to start driving inequality to what we see today? Yeah, as as you as you said, um, there there was inequality. There was a big gap between the between the poorest Americans and the richest Americans, even in the in the period from the end of World War II into the early nineteen seventies. But there was no widening of inequality, mm -hmm. as you said. A rising tide lifted all boats, and then around the early nineteen seventies, something changed. We'll talk a little bit about what did, and we began to see. Um, Almost stagnation as at the at the at the bottom, and not so great in the middle, and at the very top, continued fairly strong growth, and there was a widening of the gap between the people at diff on different ladders of the income distribution. 
the growth was faster at the top than at, in the middle and certainly at the bottom. So one thing that happened in the 70s, the early 70s, was we had, uh, we had an oil price shock uh, in, the, in 1973. We had um, a productivity slowdown for reasons that we didn't fully understand, where, where the output per hour produced per, per worker had been on a, on a strong trend in which standards of living would, and, and, if, and if incomes kept up with productivity, which, which they did in that period, standards of living would double in 25 years. And that the productivity growth slowed so substantially that there was almost stagnation at the bottom and only growth at the very top. So there, was a, there became a disconnect between the typical compensation, the person at the middle of the distribution, the worker at the middle of the distribution, used to be that that tracked productivity. Right. And then after the early 1970s, the um, productivity grew faster than income. And that continued for quite some time. And we, so we have, a, we, have a bigger, we have a big gap. And sometime in the 1970s. And part of it was the productivity slowdown, part of it, well, and, and wages not keeping pace, real wages not keeping pace, real compensation. Um, so three things have been uh, discussed among economists, debated among economists ab about relative importance and what they are. But, but the three things that get pointed to, one is the productivity um, slowdown and um, what, what gets called an education or a skills gap, where the premium for having a college education over not having a college education, the wage premium widened sub substantially. And therefore, the, 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 the average, when, when you look at an average income or an average wage, um, more weight is going to folks at the top. They're, they're getting more of it. Right. And, and, that, and that pulls up the average, but doesn't pull up the, 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 the wages of people, um, the argument goes, that don't have the skills to, to, um, or, or the education to, to get the kinds of jobs that pay higher wages. Now, that's, that, that's, that, that's a pretty values-laden um, statement about, about people and blaming them when that's not necessarily... No, we don't want to be blaming the people. This, this piece of the argument goes, there was a turn against workers, the, the kinds of things we were producing and the, and, the, and the wages that were being earned in which industries turned against people without a college degree. Right. Second major thing, which I'm sure, um, which, which, which got revived again uh, recently, um, is international trade. Um, the, the world economy became more open to trade. The United States became more open to trade. And um, the argument on behalf of trade being a major culprit is that um, import comp competition from, um, from cheaper imports impacted industries that employed um, workers with less education. Right. Um, uh, I mean, if, if, you're, if you're a steel worker, um, you didn't go to college probably, but you earned a great wage. Um, but... But with competition from foreign steel, um, there, there might there, there could be some uh, some clamping down on on wages, right? And and using steel workers as an example, the third discussion um, is the decline in unions. There there was there was more equality between labor and um, and management in uh, setting wages in in big companies and that, that trickling down to, um, to further in the income distribution. Um, and as as you probably know, your and your your viewers probably know, um, unionization has declined substantially um, since the early 1970s. Sure, sure. And the bargaining power has shifted much more towards um, towards employers and away from from workers, and that's that's held down wages. So some combination of those three things, and there's. There's a counter argument uh, or a question about each one of them, right. um, and or some some operating in some parts of that period, others operating more in other parts of that period. But those those are the three uh, common explanations for what we observed. I often deal with unions in my own research, and as I'm sure you're well aware, 
uh, if you do a cross-national comparison of different countries and you look at workers who are in unions, of course, the workers themselves who are in the unions are doing better. So they have better wages, they have better benefits, you know, healthcare, etc. But you also find that those countries tend to do better. So even workers who are not in those unions, when they are, when they live in countries that have high unionization rates, it tends to have a spillover effect and make the, the broader society more equal, make conditions for workers better, uh, regardless of whether those workers are in the unions or not. And, um, you know, some of the pushback that I get when I talk to people here in the U.S. about unions is, you know, they bring up the horror stories and there are horror stories. And we should be honest about that. I mean, there's, you know, teachers unions paying teachers not to teach. Right. And there's um, unions in New York and a, a variety of other urban centers that just, you know, the, the rules and regulations create create all sorts of just major, major inefficiencies. And so we don't want to go overboard and go in that direction. But you also don't want to be underrepresented and have really low unionization rates. Right? I think there's a happy medium in between. That's right. I mean, it's it's no surprise, and and we've learned it um, in the in the in the past um, few years that uh, the United States um, has um, complicated um, politics and complicated economics. <laughs> really, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and 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 you the, you see the differences. Um, uh, politically, but but economically, as you said, um, you know, places places where unions are stronger um, have one set of characteristics, um, and and maybe maybe things are um, um, in places where there are not there are plenty of places in the in the country where there are not unions, and those are places where minimum wage there's there's not too many um, higher state minimum wages, um, where unemployment insurance systems are not great. Um, and and so there's there's a lot a lot of the um, a lot of this, uh, or have not accepted the uh, the Medicaid expansion. You mentioned um, you know these these vast inequalities between workers, and quite obviously it's leading to vast inequalities in the places they live. Um, there was a great book by Jonathan Guest. He says that uh, many working class Americans live in regions that have been negatively impacted by the trauma of simultaneous economic, social, and political collapse. Um, you know, you talk about, you know, trade imbalances and, and competition and those sorts of things. Um, you know, a, a lot of these areas of the country, industries are leaving, jobs are leaving. And so it's not just the material conditions, but also all the other social consequences, right? Like the death of despair that Angus and, or I'm sorry, Case and Deaton talk about and, um, you know, marriages falling apart and single parenthood. I mean, there's this, this, this sort of cascading effects in some areas of the country and then other, other areas, you know, life couldn't be better, right? Right. So, so I'm not a sociologist. Yeah, sure. sure. <laughs> um, and, and but but um, but but as an economist, you you do you do see um, the, the 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 urban rural divide. Yeah. Um, I'm not an expert on on rural economics, but what seems to be the case is, first of all, most big, lots of big cities are doing well. Not all. Um, and it critically depends on on key industries. And right. when you get when you get to smaller cities, smaller cities have a key industry. Right. And and if you keep it in its thriving, so are you in your area. And if you lose it, then it's devastating because it's hard it's hard to replace. Yeah. And so there's that there's that divide in 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 how how the 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 broad changes that affect the composition of, of industries. What's, what are we producing? What are we not producing? How's trade affecting that? The opening of the, uh, of international trade agreements to China, um, in the, in the 2000s, um, led to some serious disruption in a few places. It's not normally the case that trade is highly disruptive to specific areas, but in this case, in this case, there's evidence that, that, it, that it was. So that's, that's a uh, a concrete example of of or a specific example of um, losing key industries can be devastating. Right, and I mean, and again, I'm not an economist, so that's where this is the part where I'll say this is not my training. Uh, but right. uh, from my understanding, is you know, trade is is good uh, uh, macro, right? So yes. um, it's always a good for for both sides, right? Um, macro level, but you know. In terms of how those benefits are distributed across the country, that's where you see the inequality, right? 
That's right. And across people. Um, right. So, so absolutely right. Trade, um, trade increases possibilities to, to have an improved standard of living for everyone. But trade does not improve standards of living for everyone because of what you said, the, the, dis, the dis, disparate impacts. And so there are winners and losers um, based on education, based on industry you work in, and so forth. Now, um, academic economists, and I was one, and I taught international trade, will say, well, what would be great is if you had policies that took some of the gains of the winners and distributed them to the losers. And the one example of that is something called trade adjustment assistance, which is like kind of like unemployment insurance for for uh, trade impacted workers. But it never was a robust pro program, and it's never worked particularly well, and um, doesn't necessarily um, solve 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 the issue. But um, but but yeah, the, in in theory, um, trade is is good for the country as a whole. But unless At least you in have, terms of economic growth, right? In, term, in, 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 ter in terms of economic growth, but also in terms of um, diversity of products available right. and incentives for for domestic industries to not stag to, to innovate. Um, yeah, so it, it's 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 standard of living somewhat more broadly defined than just um, you know GDP growth. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I often talk about this in class with my students, which is anytime there's a big boogeyman that they've heard to hate, you know, like globalization and these sorts of things. I always pull up the statistics at different countries. It's like, well, this country handled globalization differently than this country, right? And they had different policies, yeah. you know, like uh, I think in Germany, you know, they still make parts of the iPhone in Germany. It's just they do the high skilled parts of the manufacturing, right? <laughs> so, right, right. right. All right. So as you sit there as the chief economist at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, uh, if you had your wish list of the policies that could help the working class, which is a little, little bit different from, than low-income Americans, but you yeah. know, people with um, high school degrees, people who with, with high school people with high school degrees who also have to take low-income jobs, what are some of the big policies that you would favor to get the most bang for our buck? The policies that are helpful. Let me let me first talk about something that's long term helpful, and that is taking care of their children. Yeah. So we have the child tax credit um, that's that's been expanded, and uh, we hope we hope will be continued. Um, we have um, nutrition programs uh, and other and other um, things that that are aimed at the children. And research is strong that those are very high bang for the buck. In terms of having better, better educated, um, healthier citizens, twenty five, thirty years from now, right? But critical, and 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 kids do better in school if 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 you take care of early childhood, kids do better in school. So so, so the kids now for the, for the families themselves, um, for for very low uh, income, we we have the income tax credit, and we want to make sure that that remains robust. Um, that that encourages work and is used to be um, have a lot of bipartisan support. Um, raise the minimum wage. Um, it's it's raise the federal minimum wage. It's 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 too low. Um, what you need for a good standard of living is to to have a decent a decent wage for for covering the the necessities. Good health care. Good retirement possibilities and the ability to educate your kids have to have them be educated if you have those things and those are those those are our government responsibilities in almost all cases to help out at least not not to necessarily um, provide everything but if, if 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 we have those then um the income that you the, the discretionary income that you have is is not drained you have money to take care of the necessities and maybe a little left over, even if you have relatively low wages. And for, for workers in general, um, the de decent wage, decent retirement protection, whether from the employer and, and healthcare, whether from the employer or um, provided by the government if the employer is not, not doing it, and, um, and a decent retirement um, possibilities. Yeah, you mentioned. Uh... The, the early childhood stuff and, and all the programs that you mentioned obviously are, are beneficial in, in different ways. Um, I'm particularly um, in favor of those programs. I think of the work of like, uh, I think uh, James Heckman 
you know, they find that like they get a 13% return on investment, you know, every year of the life for a dollar spent in early childhood, which is just an incredible profit for society. My own colleague, Michael McLaughlin and I, we just finished a study and it was actually continuing some work that he had done with Mark Rank, but, um, where, uh, we found that, uh, for, uh, when you reduce child poverty, I think for every dollar spent reducing child poverty, you, you get like $7 worth of benefits or something like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, those, those things seem like they're, they're really good investments to help the families, but also then to, to make the children more productive later on. Right. There's a, there's a, a meta study. And what that means is it's a study of studies um, by, by Nathaniel Hendren and others that looks at a broad range of, of uh, programs, um, so, social safety net programs and others, and, and confirms just what you said, that, that looking, after, looking at programs for kids really pay off down the road. Well, you're talking to a uh, Raj Chetty and Nathaniel Hendren super fan right here. So <laughs> there you go. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> well, Chad Stone, I could talk to you forever. This is my area of interest, but uh, I think I'll let you go. So, uh, so Chad Stone, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're very welcome. It was it was, it was enjoyable. I hope I hope you enjoyed it as well. <laughs> Happy Labor Day. All right. Well, up next, Allie's going to rejoin the show, and we are going to talk to Emily Gundelsberger, who wrote On the Clock, What Low-Wage Work Did to Me and How It Drives America Insane. Emily Gundelsberger, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, let's go through each one. Um, Amazon, I'm particularly interested in this scanner that you had, that you were walking around with, that would tell you how many seconds you had and so you had to locate a piece and then you, yay, I successfully located the piece. And then the countdown starts for the next piece, right? Um, at the call center, it was every second documented, no, no good customer service, right? Like get through, read the script, get off. You're getting it from management, right? And then you're getting screamed at by callers. And then the McDonald's, which I found really interesting. I didn't know any of this, but it makes total sense now because I'm a I'm I'm an uh, unhealthy person and I eat McDonald's, <laughs> and it makes total sense as to why the service is so bad. Because what you argue is, it's intended to be that they are intentionally understaffed, that it's maximum efficiency. They're not trying to <laughs> to do a great job. So let's start with no. uh, with technotailorism at Amazon, then we'll go through the different uh, workplaces. Yeah, I know Amazon has changed a, a lot of things since I worked there. Um, and the scanners uh, for pickers, I don't think do that anymore. It's more of like they show your rate at the bottom. And so you can always tell what your rate is and it goes up and down, but it's no longer quite so like second by second, like, all right, all right, all right, all right, hurry, hurry, hurry. Um, but I mean, it sounded like it was like, the most stressful thing in the world. Like you have seven seconds to locate this. And then as soon as you locate it, you now have 27 seconds to locate this next piece. Yeah. It drove me, it really drove me crazy. I, it, it stressed me out so much. I think there's a sort of person that reacts to that and they're always happy to get one of those people that like sees a countdown and is like, Oh God, I have to, I have to stay ahead of this countdown regardless of whether it makes sense for you to do that or not. Um, and you described some workers who were like that, right? Who were like, th saw it as like a challenge and they kind of enjoyed it. Yeah. It's like people who are going for the gold star. <laughs> right. Um, but I think, again, with uh, it's the same thing as, as journalism and academia. And I think everywhere, like people are starting to realize a little bit that like gold stars don't get you anything. Hmm. anymore they used to i think or at least in the sort of like american mythos of you know horatio alger and like doing pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and like find you know ask the boss for something else to do and you know do the job that you're not being paid for uh do the job that you want not the job that you have even if you're not being paid enough for it you know, i think it's becoming increasingly obvious to anybody who has had to get a job or work a job since like 2008. That's not a good job uh, where you're not measured constantly and held up to metrics constantly. Uh, I think everybody, it, it's pretty obvious to everybody that that's not sustainable, like that it's going to drive everyone insane. Uh, but it seems like a lot of the people who have power in these situations do not 
at least that was my thought with writing this book, that they just don't get it. But now I'm not, I'm not that sure anymore whether that was the case or not, whether it's that they don't understand and need someone to explain it so that they don't have to think about it at all. Um, but I don't think that's the case anymore. I think that it's that they don't care, <laughs> which well, that's depressing. I know, isn't it? That's worse. <laughs> yeah, no, it actually because the former like a, could be fixed, or no, it's the former is an easier fix. Well, true. The latter is a much harder fix, but well, that's a that's a really interesting observation. But but before we leave Amazon, I, I want you to go. So you you talk about the physical exhaustion, right? Like your pedometer said you walked fifteen miles a day. You mm-hmm. talked about how bored you were, like in the lights in the warehouse, I think would light up as you entered different zones. And so you're just by yourself yep. singing to yourself. You'd light up when you saw somebody. So, um, but I'm interested in the other ways that you talked about it um, impacting you. I remember at one point in the book, you talked about um, it eroded your empathy, like it, it degrades the social aspects of human beings. You said that you you were so beaten down by it that you ignored somebody's call for a ride. Can you Can you tell that story? Yeah, it was. So this is the story. And I still feel kind of terrible talking about it, honestly. But uh, there was a kid I worked with. His name was Daryl. He was like really chatty. Like we weren't really close or anything, but we talked. We were in the same training group. And then one day, you know, and this was in the middle of December. uh, And I knew that he took the bus home. So one day it was cold and kind of sleety. And it was it had been a really bad like exhausting day and I saw him waiting at the bus stop and just thinking about like how annoying it was going to be for him to get home as compared to me like I still was going to have to drive a long time I was like you should you should give him a ride you should pick him up and but it was like some well like something in me was that I didn't really recognize as sort of my own voice I guess said like nope you're not picking him up. Screw that guy. I, we, we don't care. It, you, are, you can only focus on yourself right now. And it's, I think that that's a really key part of why America is so deranged right now. Like, and I'm sure that anybody who like, has been really exhausted at some point in time for an extended amount of time understands this. Like, you just can't care about other people for a while or it becomes harder i think well it's interesting because you describe yourself as a bit of a of an interloper right like a social class interloper and yet Mm -hmm. this is one of the most interesting parts of your book because you 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 make it very clear at the beginning like look i'm i'm a tourist here yeah i can't truly feel how this is and yet let me tell you how it impacted even me somebody who knew i was going to be out of this soon and so mm-hmm. eroding your empathy, being physically exhausted, you thought you'd be able to write all this stuff at night and you just had no time for it. You wanted to watch trash TV, I think. Um, yeah. You talked about eating unhealthy food. Um, and one more thing, and Allie, I'll, I'll let you ask some Amazon questions here before we move on to McDonald's. But one thing I really think is interesting that you should expand upon is people seek relief. And so some of the ways, one, you said there were uh, pain relievers in the vending machine in the cafeteria, <laughs> number one. And number, still two, are. <laughs> and number two, you said uh, opioids were everywhere. So could you expand upon those uh, re- coping mechanisms? Yeah. The, one of the things that I really felt when I was staying in uh, Louisville, Kentucky was like, a, I was in a lot of pain all of the time because uh, like I wasn't used to warehousing work um, and it was an adjustment for sure. So about the pain medication in the vending machine, like that's one of the things that gets picked out of that book a lot. And I always feel compelled to like sort of amend it a little bit in that that doesn't that's sort of a symbol, I think, of how big the divide between the classes that work in warehouses and the classes that like make that want to talk to me about this book uh, are. Most people who work in warehousing know that that's kind of sweet to have free aspirin because it's not that other warehouses, you're not going to need it. 
It's just that you pay for it yourself. You, you know what I mean? And it's the same thing with like, I don't know, warehousing shoes. Uh, Amazon actually has like a what I think is an extremely good program through Zappos now where they hmm. will just give people like $120 credits to buy warehousing shoes, which I think is really great. Um, but there is just something about, uh, you know, Tylenol and the vending machines that expresses something to people who have not ever worked in a warehouse before. Like, oh, wow, it's like that, huh? Um, but even more serious than that, you noted, I think in all of the places you were, Kentucky, North Carolina, and then California, that at least among this segment of workers, opioids were ever present. I was really thought that I was going to get so much writing done after work and so much reading and so much research, but I couldn't. The only thing I could make myself do, the only thing, it was like I'd run out of gas just at work and I had none left for doing anything else. And so the, I just wanted something to feel okay. And I think a lot of people want that, except like it's a lot harder for other, if your life is screwed up beyond, oh, I'm just, you know, like I'm in physical pain, but oh, yeah, I can go back to like my old life. That people would seek relief from that pain. I talked to uh, a researcher about addiction there because it was so, it was so obvious everywhere in Louisville and there were rehab signs along the road for opioids, uh, all of these things. So I talked to this expert in opioids uh, and he said something that kind of stuck with me, which is that people's brains are not built to like just be in pain all the time. They're just not. Uh, and they will try to come up with some way to make you feel better. Even if that way is not particularly helpful in the modern world, ice cream is a big one for me. Uh, opioids for other people, uh, like just all sorts of things, yelling at people on the internet, <laughs> I guess. Finding these brief little splashes of pleasure among you know, a life that is pretty bleak and you don't see, you feel like you have any control over it. Um, people just will find that they'll find some way to do it. And that idea of like people looking for relief rather than like people looking for pleasure has really changed the way I've thought about sort of the opioid epidemic. I think that we could provide relief as a society, then you would not have that many people looking for it, you know? Well, can you actually, can you, uh, can you talk to us about working at the call center in North Carolina? Because um, I would, as someone who efforts every time the phone rings and it rings quite frequently, I always try and answer the phone and I'm old. So I answer a hard line phone with a smile all the time. And because um, I know that there is a human being at the other end. What's but a line? You know what? These days, okay, Lawrence, I'll draw you a picture. The phone, <laughs> a hard line phone is like a thing. It's got a base. What's Until, a by the way, True story. My husband is so much older than I am that until he met me, he had a rotary phone and oh, he had God. to get a push button phone because I made him get an answering machine. That's right. I converted my husband to an answering machine. This thing is the bee's I, knees. I know it really was. He, had, <laughs> he would plug a thing in and say, you know, Clovis, get me. Electra nine. Um, and then I'd pick up the phone. Uh, it was great back in the old days. But, um, uh, I, you know, I always tell Is your husband a time traveler? Like, yeah. it's even possible that he had a no, rotary phone. He actually had a rotary That is a totally oh, my parents true had story. a rotary phone growing yeah. up. It yep. wasn't their only one. And it was like, I think sort of as like, a, ooh, look at this cool old Your parents. Phone. Look at that. Yeah, well, I, you parents. know what? To be, when to I was be fair, up. to be fair, Lawrence, Pete is probably as old as Emily's parents. <laughs> okay, that, okay. In all seriousness, my, my husband is 62. So uh, no, my, right. no, <laughs> no. Okay. Well, now we got you beat. Okay. Cool. Oh, good. See, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm married to a, a young dude uh, mm -hmm. by comparison to your parents. Um, so uh, wait, backtrack. backtrack so you're always backtrack, nice backtrack, to everybody. In the I'm call always center. nice. Yes. So I'm so I always I tell my students even uh, when they apply for jobs, 
and they put their cell phone number on their resume, answer the phone with a smile. That way, if it's somebody calling to say, hi, we'd like to interview you, you know, you don't pick up the phone and go, what? You know, like whatever. Uh, you, you sound happy and professional. But these days, I'd say seven times out of 10, it's like, hello, this is the Social Security Administration. We have an issue with your number. You must call We've us. We've been trying to reach number. you about your Exactly, right. <laughs> you know, or it's like your car's warranty. Um, and I feel yeah. like, ah, I've got endless smiles. So that's okay. It's not a waste. Um, but I know that uh, from your book that you did not necessarily have me as your customer all the time. And people did not pick up the phone with a smile. So um, can you tell us about your experience in North Carolina working in a call center? Yeah. Uh, so I, in this call center, I think this this was a close second to Amazon as the most stressful one for me because it was very, <laughs> very mentally stressful uh, because I was working for AT&T at the time, and, which is my cell phone provider. Uh, and people were calling in not because they like, you know, were happy to be with AT&T. They were calling in because there was a problem with their bill usually. And uh, they wanted me to fix it, but I was required to try to sell them stuff uh, at least three times before I could, you know, stop trying. Uh, so that's already sort of setting you up to fail and get yelled at. It's sort of like forcing the rep to ignore social cues. If you hear the no once, you you can tell, no, I'm really not interested in that. Most normal people would be like, okay, cool, let's go on and fix your problem rather than continuing to bug them about it. It's just, it's another sort of way uh these corporations are able to really exercise this kind of minute amount of control over what people say on the phone, what people do in warehouses, how workers like uh, talk to McDonald's customers, all of that sort of thing. Like you're not allowed to use human judgment about, I don't know, whether you're going to injure your knee if you continue working at this pace uh, whether you are going to irreparably piss off this customer to the point that they have a meltdown at you, if you continue to like push them on trying to sell stuff, it, you know what I mean? Well, you called it, you said it was repetitive, mind numbing, low control, high stress, and that you could fill 20 pages with stories of workers who seriously considered self-harm. And yeah, that, like an that awful, was an awful, awful job. <laughs> it was, it was rough. Uh, just, I mean, at any job, there's people who take failure at a job really personally. And it's not everybody, but it's me. I tend to, if I can't be good at something, I tend to blame myself. And I think a lot of people do too. And there is nowhere where it's as obvious that you were failing uh, than at a call center <laughs> because like you, you know, immediately because the person starts being angry with you uh, when you're not able to do your job well enough because you haven't been trained or you don't have the equipment or like the equipment is slow or, you know, stuff like that that's out of your control. Um, so it's sort of like being put in this position where you're just set up to fail all the time. And then you bear the entire brunt of the anger, uh, of, of the consequences of being set up to fail. You're sort of a human shield for the company. I don't know. People on the phone don't want to hear like, oh, we're really understaffed. I'm sorry. Like, oh, geez, I just got off the, I just got off a call with someone else and they sent me a call, another, a new call too fast. So I'm really trying to like multitask by typing out the person's comments from the last call while I'm trying to talk to you. And it just, makes you kind of crazy. Um, and I think that amount of anxiety that gets uh, sort of tied up into, because I, workplaces have figured out that that kind of anxiety that like, oh God, I, 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 I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail and get yelled at. I'm going to fail is an incredible motivator of workers to be more productive up to a point. I think we've hit that point. I think we hit that point a long time ago, actually. Uh, but people are, but people are still like trying to wring more, more and more and more blood out of the stone. And I do think by by turning up the anxiety and turning up the sort of things like that, monitoring calls and stuff like that makes you anxious. 
because you think in the back of your head, like, oh, yeah, like my boss could be listening to me at any time. And I think that that the amount of anxiety that's like purposely applied to workers in an attempt to get them to go faster and do their jobs more assiduously or whatever uh, is a really big part of why everybody's acting really crazy right now. <laughs> it's It just sort of breaks your, your body after a while if you keep just flipping your stress switch on and on like you do off and on like you do at a job where you know, every, every five minutes, you have a new caller who could be the one that yells at you, or could be the one that you fail at. And that's like, that's, it gets overlooked as like a factor in why America is the way it is. Did you find that there was more camaraderie in the call center, because you were with more people than in the Amazon warehouse, where it was more Uh, isolated? Yes. I mean, for sure. Like, it's just like a group of 20 people having to work together for for six weeks to learn how to do this, this thing. It, you know, you make friends, you just do. Whereas in the Amazon warehouse, like you, uh, when my job picking was very isolated, and it's even more so these days, uh, because now, in the new robotic ones that that are the sort of new generation of Amazon warehouses, like you mostly stay in one place all day and it's kind of far from other people. So you barely have a chance to get to know anybody uh, unless you have been there for quite a while. Can you now take us to McDonald's in San Francisco? And as you do, um, will you will you eat McDonald's now after you've worked there? Or oh, did sure. you? Okay. Did you burn out? Because I, I worked at a Hagen dazs and um, it was like a year that afterwards that I just because <laughs> I, I ate too much of it. Like I just got really sick of it. My arm was always sticky, um, and so I just I got <laughs> oh, like yeah. kind of woozy from eating so much. It's not that there was anything gross about it. Hagen dazs is delicious. It was too yeah, delicious. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> did you eat a lot of McDonald's? And uh, tell us about working there. I no, I I totally still eat McDonald's every once in a while. I try not to because now I'm. 38 years old and the the old metabolism don't work the way it used to. Uh, But yeah, it's always been my comfort food since I was a kid. It's sort of like what my parents would get me if like I had to go get my braces tightened or if I I had a lot of surgery when I was a kid. So I always, I I started, started associating it with, oh, you feel better, which is another sort of callback to what we were talking about earlier with the looking for relief from something. Um, so, yeah, no, I every once in a while, I, I will when I'm in a bad mood, I'll get myself some McDonald's. Now, your, um, your McDonald's experience was, it seemed like, had some similar techno tailorist aspects to it, right? Like you uh, were understaffed, you talked about algorithmic scheduling, I mean, all this kind of stuff. Tell us about the the frantic kind of pace of working there. Yeah, like anytime you are at uh, like a McDonald's during a rush, just keep in mind, if you don't know it already, that the people who are working have no say in how in how the place is staffed. The place is staffed how it is for a reason. And it is that whoever at the top is making the decisions say like, all right, uh, the customers will put up with the line being that having to wait X amount of minutes and not any longer before they go off and do something and, and get Wendy's or something. So they exact, so they try to staff it. So, so you get exactly X amount of minutes because if you have less of a, like if you have a shorter wait than that, then that sort of means that you're, you've supplied too many workers and they're not, you know, going, they're not at full capacity of their ability to serve hamburgers or whatever. So the understaffing is on purpose uh, and it really makes life so much more difficult. Earlier, we were talking about how people use stress as a motivator. Customer imposed stress has always been a motivator for anybody in a, in a customer facing job, especially when they can like see you. Um, because if a customer sees anyone relaxing while there's a line or like not doing or even just not doing something that's obviously 
going as fast as they possibly can to get the orders out, um, they get angry. And a lot of the time they'll like yell at you. They'll sort of like stand in for the boss and uh, sort of punish you for not going as fast as possible. And that's what McDonald's sort of felt like to me, this sort of like very carefully understaffed and under-resourced situation where you just were like, all right, just make do with what you have, make do with how many people you have, even if it's really not enough to deal with a lunch rush in a, in a way that makes anybody happy. Uh, but it does keep, uh, you know, labor uh, prices down. That That is the funny thing out of all of those, the, Fast food is by far regarded as the worst of any of those jobs, like in Amazon warehouses and stuff. People will talk about like Amazon warehouses are rough, but I would like never do fast food again uh, is generally people's thought about it. Like, especially since Amazon came out with the $15 an hour thing, that's a lot more than you can get doing fast food in, in most areas. Emily Gindelsberger, your book On the Clock is a tremendous read. I do think it's a great uh, follow-up update, whatever you want to say. Certainly along the, has along the same thread as uh, Nickel and Dimed, and uh, I think gives us great insight into the modern low-wage economy. So thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Before we go, we want to remind you to visit our website, utterlymoderatenetwork.com. There you can find all of our podcast episodes and their companion resources, our guide to reliable news outlets, the contact page where you can suggest topics for future shows, and more. That's utterlymoderatenetwork.com. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. And until then, we'll play you out with friends of the show, the Riders in the Sky. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet again trails to you until we meet again happy trails to you keep smiling until then who cares about the clouds when we're together just sing the song and bring the sunny weather happy trails to you Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.